0: Welcome to the AHA Process webinar podcast series. In this installment, AHA Process founder Ruby Payne discusses a framework for understanding poverty and 10 actions to educate students. Thank you, thank you, thank you. One of the things we're going to look at in the hour we have together is that we're going to look at a framework for understanding poverty 20 years later. And I see that many of you started using it very early on. I never expected that it would last for 20 years. I thought I'd do it for a year and then do something else. So I'm as surprised as you are. And one of the things that it seems to resonate over time. So one of the ways that we have changed it is that we have started looking at a a larger frame here in terms of a uh, model that we're using about what happens to the framework over time? And um, I'm wondering, uh, and so what happened is we started with the framework for understanding, and then what we did is it morphed over time. And I want to talk about how it's morphed a little bit and where we're going with it. And it started out with framework on the school side, and then my mother and father who were, my father was a Mennonite minister, and my mother was obviously his wife, there was somebody in Ohio named uh, Phil Duvall who lived very close to them. And Phil used to call my mother and ask for help because he ran a drug treatment center. He, he also asked for help in terms of baby beds, etc. Now, you need to know my mom and dad never read the book, but they like to give it away. So one of the things... um. That happened is they, Phil called for a baby bed. My mother said, Would you like to read my daughter's book? Well, if he's going to get the baby bed, he needs to say yes. So he did. And he called me and said, Ruby, we need to do this for social work. That became Bridges Out of Poverty. And then we started working directly with adults in poverty, which was called Getting Ahead. And that led to Bridges and a larger community effort because we found that you couldn't really move the needle without looking at the larger community. So that led then to establishing a company which as many of you know the website is ahaprocess.com and by the way I'm always sorry that I called the company AHA because people would write on their evaluations this was an AHA for me. So we named the company AHA Process and then actually no one knew how to answer the phone. Aha. So. It was a problem. But there's lots of free information on the website that you can use and download and get. We are starting to do a lot of our training online in addition to webinars. And what we are doing now is looking at how we begin to make it available in a larger frame. One thing I want to say as we get started um, is that we are doing. um, once a year we do this conference and next year it's going to be in St. Louis where people from, we have 330 communities using this work now in a wide variety of ways and we ask you to bring teams if you're interested in a community-wide effort and it will be in uh, St. Louis in September 2017 and people, the practitioners come and say this is what we're doing with it this is how it's working for us And now I'm going to ask David to pull up a slide to show you where the model on the school side has gone. And we are looking at this model uh, in terms of a larger frame. We've started talking a lot about what makes the um, model work. And framework for understanding is um, predicated on a couple things. So one of the biggest issues that I want to talk about, that we've started talking about across the board, is the whole issue of causes on poverty and class in general. And as you know, I have critics. And one of the things about critics is that they, well, let me ask you this. How many of you do have critics? Well, I do. And I think most people do if you're doing anything. And one of the things that I should say is that almost all of the critics are higher ed professors who do not have tenure. Uh, and they're all from the field of social justice. One of them uh, was at a conference presenting and a friend of mine was there. And they said, you know what? Uh, I know Ruby and she doesn't say any of the stuff that you said she said. And he, this particular uh, professor said to my friend, look, I don't really care what she says because the bottom line is if I use her name in a paper, I get to put it on my list for tenure. He said I have to have a certain number of publications and a certain number of presentations. So he said I can get on the presentation board if I use her name. And he said I honestly don't care what she says. So I don't think that's true of all of them. But the criticism mostly from a social justice perspective is that we don't talk about the causes of poverty in the school side, but we do on the community side that they think are most important. So let nowhere was this more important and more prevalent than in the current political debate over the presidential candidate. But those there are four causes of poverty. One is the behaviors of the individual. And if you want to read more about this, this is O'Connor's work out of Stanford University. But she says that We have never really successfully determined the cause. So one research base is about the behaviors of the individual. Second one is jobs, basically. In other words, you can make all the right individual choices, but if there's no jobs in your community, then you're in trouble. The third one is exploitation, which is racism, sexism, predators. Um, If you get an advance from a payday lender not cash your check, but you get an advance, like you have a flat tire, you have to get it fixed, you get an advance, what percent of interest rate will you end up paying on that advance? Anybody know? Yeah, Amy, you're close. It goes anywhere from 150% to 400%, yeah, Julianne and Barker, you're right. Only people that are uh, have to follow usury rates actually are banks. So one of the things that happens, yes, Mary Jane Murray, yes, 435%. So that's exploitation. The last research base is political and economic structures. For example, as many of you know, when you are born, you get a a Social Security number. Most employers, when they're checking uh, criminal background checks, they will use a Social Security number to determine if you have any criminal offenses. In many high poverty households, parents will use the child's social security number to get the utilities turned back on. The child turns 18 and their credit rating is ruined. And many companies will not hire you even if you have no criminal record because you have a bad credit rating. That's a political and economic structure. Now. If you are on the political right, you believe it's the first two research bases, behaviors and jobs. If you're on the political left, you think it's about exploitation racism and government kind of systems. And so what we find happens in communities and in school districts is that they start fighting about causation. In the school district, they'll say things like, I'm not going to vote for another bond levy because if those parents would just take care of their children instead of buying a big screen TV, they'd have the money they need. Or I was in uh, Florida last year and I worked with a group of businessmen and their comments were, you know, if we just had more jobs and better jobs, we wouldn't have poverty. The next day I worked with a foundation and a woman in the foundation said to me, Ruby, if we just wouldn't have racism, we wouldn't have poverty. We have to address that first. And then the next day, I was with a group of social service providers, and they said, Ruby, if we just did not have the clift effect, we wouldn't have poverty. By the way, uh, yeah, Amy, yeah, you do believe all four. And the reality is, is that actually, when we work with communities, all four of them cause, they're all four there. They all four cause the problem. They're all interwoven. And what we say to communities is this if you only address one, you will never move the needle because they're all four there. So before I go any further, is you understand or can you see how four all four of them create the problem? So what we try to do is we start saying to communities, unless you address all four, you simply are not going to move the needle. The problem has been exacerbated for this reason. Okay? We have changed economic bases. When we were primarily agrarian, you didn't really actually have to go to school. You could make a living without going to school. And the way we represented wealth on paper was with something called a deed. You take that piece of paper to the bank, and you're allowed to capitalize on your assets. Can't take the farm in there, but you can take that piece of paper. Well, when we became industrial, we took that same concept across, but we called it stock certificates. That's how we represented wealth. Okay, And then, well, you didn't have to go to school again. But when we became knowledge-based, which a lot of people think happened in 1972, And the business community calls it intellectual capital. Now you have to go to school. And the problem is nobody, and I mean nobody, really knows how you represent intellectual capital on paper. You know, is it patents? Is it copyrights? The closest we have to it is whether or not you have a college degree. But everybody in here knows that you have a college degree uh, doesn't mean you have any intellectual capital. We work with them every day. So, the whole thing that has happened now is that we have started to look at this whole human capacity, intellectual capital thing, and we're going to look at the whole class issue now from a cognitive frame. In other words, how do you know what you know? And we're going to say that part of knowledge is now a form of privilege. So, What you know and who you know combined with your resources, as those of you who are familiar with the work know that we define poverty and wealth in terms of a set of resources. And then what your environment demands from you to survive. That impacts your thinking. And your knowledge base and your thinking is what you use to negotiate your environment. And more than ever... You have to negotiate your environment against a knowledge base. So when I work around the world, and what we're saying to people now is the more under-resourced you are, the fewer your resources, the more you live on the left-hand side of this chart. The more resources you have, the more you live on the right-hand side of the chart. See, one of the issues is this. If we just define poverty as money, okay, then the only way you actually ever change the problem is with more money. But the bottom line on the thing is this. A lot of people are destabilized a lot of ways. Like, for example, if you don't have emotional resources, mental illness, for example, you're going to be destabilized. It doesn't really matter how much money you have. okay? And so one of the things we say is the fewer the resources, the more you live on the left-hand side of the chart, the more resourced you are, the more you live on the right-hand side of the chart. And we're going to call middle class is when your resource base is stable. In other words, we don't use money for middle class, because it goes anywhere from 20000 to $200,000, okay And they all believe they're middle class. But middle class typically is characterized by the fact that they know where they're going to sleep at night. they got food every day. Um, Most of their bills get paid, that kind of deal, okay? So let me ask you this question. Why is it true that the fewer your resources, the more difficult it becomes to plan? Right. That's right, Leslie. You're subject to the next wild card. Uh Right. So... The irony of this whole thing, though, is the more difficult it becomes to plan because your resources are thin, but to survive in work and school, you've got to be able to plan. So it's diametrically opposed, okay? Um, one of the stories I tell when I present is it what it starts doing is getting you into what is called thought polarization. Everything becomes either or. Like if I go to the grocery store with $2, I can have this or I can have this, but I can't have them both. So what happens over time is you don't seek options anymore. A story I tell is I had this 14-year-old boy in high school. And he was deliberately failing my class, and I knew it. But he came from a part of the district they called a River Rats, which was a neighborhood of generational poverty on the river. And so one day I called him aside privately, and I said, help me understand what's going on here. He said, well, I'm dumb. I said, no, you're not. He said, well, I forgot. I said, no, you didn't. Because I look in your eyes, and I know you know. I said, so what is it? He looked at me, and he said, you got to be crazy in here if you think I can get an A. I said, why can't you get an A? He said, I wouldn't have any friends. I said, so how many friends would a B cost you? Okay. Now, I know that sounds funny, but the problem is simply this. He's thinking he can only have an A or an F. He doesn't think there's anything between there. I want him to think about that. So I said, so how many friends would be cost you? He said, I wouldn't have any respect. I said, that's probably true. The phrase I heard more frequently than any other phrase in Frank's neighborhood, my former husband's neighborhood from whom I learned this, so Frank died, by the way, in 2010. I said he wouldn't have any respect. And the phrase I heard more frequently than any other phrase in Frank's neighborhood was this one. Real men don't push paper. What does that mean? Real men don't push paper. Yes. Real men work with their hands. Okay. Yes. There's no respect. So I said to him, how many friends would a C cost you? He said, well, I could probably have a C. I said, I'll guarantee you won't get above a C. I can do that. The bottom line on the whole thing is that it is about choices and options. Another characteristic that characterizes poverty around the world is that men do not have work or they only have intermittent work. There's... See, in 1964, when we started the War on Poverty, the research that everybody was relying on then was that the educational attainment level of a child is directly correlated to the educational attainment level of the mother. So the thinking at that time was, you didn't really have to talk to the... You didn't have to do anything with men. All you had to do was intervene for women. So for the last 50 years in federal policy, the interventions have been with for women. There have been almost none for men, except prison, if you call that an intervention. So the bottom line on the thing is, is that there's a brilliant African-American uh, sociologist out of Harvard who says this. His name is Wilson and he wrote a book called When Work Disappears. He said this, if you want to break a culture, All you have to do is take work away from men because it changes identity. You see, I'm very concerned, very concerned. And when I work with communities, I really stress that they need to start looking at their men. Because right now in America, in the bottom 20% of households, 30% of adult men who do not work, of working age, do not work. Hey, that's not a sustainable system. And that does not count the ones who are in prison. So the bottom line on the thing, it's a huge crisis. Because what happens is you, when you're not a provider anymore, you have to have an identity. So it goes from role identity to gender identity. And what a real man does, what a real man doesn't do, what a real woman does, what a real woman doesn't do. and The reality is this, when you don't have role identity, when you're no longer a provider, then you can be a lover, you can be a protector, a fighter. And if you choose lover and fighter, then you can't have stability because people are always looking for you. Frank died in 2010, his brother Jim died in 2011 in jail. And Jim was a fighter and lover all his life. Okay. The problem is, you get in a fight with the law, then the cops are looking for you. So then you got to quit your job. When you quit your job, then you got to run and hide, okay? Because if you don't quit your job, they find you there. So the first place you go is your mother's. The second place you go is your girlfriend's. One time he came, he was running from the law, and he came over to our house. I said, "You can't stay here." He's, he, and so I said, "Where are you going to go?" He said, "Oh, Ruby, I'm going to go to the local bar because everybody gets prettier at closing time." Well, he looking for a place to stay. So you see these patterns around the world. Well, what happens is this then. How you spend your time determines what you know. Because knowledge is now a form of privilege. And one of the ways we're all alike around the world is we all have 24 hours a day. That's it. So what people do around the world is they take that 24 hours a day. See, and unless you get by on 2 hours of sleep a night, you're pretty much right there, okay? They mix it on an axis with their resources in order to stay stable. And they have ways to spend their time. Now, many of you know about these circles, okay? But one of the things we find Is that how you spend your time determines what you know? This is a mental model of poverty from 300 adults in poverty who went through getting ahead. This is how they say they spend their time. So, if you don't mind, one or two things that you see on this chart that you yourself would not spend time on Uh, a lot of agency time, time you go to agencies. The next chart is. When your resources are stable, middle class, if you will, when your resource base is stable, this is what you tend to spend your time on. And so let me ask, what do you see on this chart you did not see on the first chart? Yes, you are right. Agency time is so health-consuming. Right. And then this last chart is what people in wealth. Now, I want to qualify this wealth chart. It's the top 1% of households which is then $7.8 million of net worth or more. Before I started doing that qualifier on her, I was at a meeting and a woman said, well, I know wealthy people and they don't do that. And then I started asking her a couple of questions and I realized she thought wealthy was $300,000 a year. Okay, no. Okay, wealth is true wealth is that top 1%. This is what they say they spend their time on. What do you see on this chart? You didn't see on the other two. Yes, you are right. There are crossovers between the circles, okay? It's a continuum. That's exactly correct. It's a continuum. I had a woman at a community meeting come up to me afterwards. She's quite wealthy. And she said, Ruby, you do not have children on the wealth chart, and children are very important in wealth. And I said, absolutely, they are. But remember, these charts are not what is important to you. These charts are about what you spend your time on. Okay, and the answer is that you're not spending your time with your children because they're either in boarding school or with nannies. Same way, same reason chemical dependency is on this chart. Now, whatever is in the middle of the circle is what stabilizes that environment. That's a key understanding here. It's what stabilizes it. I had a a congressman in uh, California say to me, Ruby, there is no difference between relationships and connections. And I said, you don't understand. There's a huge difference between relationships and connections. Relationships help you get by. Connections help you get ahead. They're very different, okay? Uh, And one of the things that I say to audiences is this. All three of these circles are in your state. All three of these circles are in your area to a matter of degree. So I'll ask the audience this. Which one of these circles makes the laws? Right. Let me ask you this question: next question. Which one of these circles runs the institutions in the United States and in your community? Institutions are always run by whom? Who actually makes the institution work? It's not the wealthy. They're on the boards. But who actually makes the institution work? That's right. It's middle class. Almost always institutions are run by middle class. Schools, agencies, social service agencies, churches. I mean, that's who runs it. And which circle do they tend to serve? Institutions tend to serve what circles? What circle? Exactly. And here's here's the deal. The circles don't understand each other. They all have a different understanding of how the world works because they all have different knowledge bases about what you have to do to make it work. I thought this this last political election was fascinating for this reason. Almost all news media comes out of middle class. Whenever they questioned Trump about what he was going to do, he constantly referred to people. He saying I know so-and-so. I'll put him in charge of China. Okay? Well, the, or whatever. The bottom line is he thinks in connections. The media wanted from him uh, documents and proposal papers and issues addressed totally different way of thinking. And so it was a fascinating discussion. Whether you were for or against Trump is not my point. My point is, it was a fascinating uh, issue to see in terms of how that whole dialogue was handled. Well, each one of these circles then comes with this set of hidden rules. And and they impact individual relationships, they impact communities, etc. And so I'd like to say a little bit about hidden rules, but I'd like to say a little bit about where they came from, okay? Hidden rules are unspoken queuing mechanisms people use to let you know you do or don't belong. And the way you broke a hidden rule is the way people look at you, okay? Um, if you don't mind chatting in the chat box, how many of you have been in a social setting that was so uncomfortable you could not wait to leave? Yeah, I think all of us have been, okay? Well, what was going on was a bunch of hidden rules we didn't know, okay? And uh, we knew we didn't know them, but we didn't know what we didn't know, okay? And so one of the things that happens in these is there's a lot of understandings and queuing mechanisms. So one of the things when I start with talk with audiences about it, I usually start here because this is the one they're most familiar with. See, what happens is when people are trying to keep their their resources stable, as I said earlier, they kind of do this axis of time and resources. And so over time, there's this intergenerational transfer of what an understanding of how you make your world work. Okay, it uh, doesn't mean it's good or bad, just is. Okay, and my critics don't like these hidden rules because they say they're stereotypes. Stereotypes are when you apply the patterns of a group to everybody in the group, but that's not what this is about. But not everybody's going to follow these patterns. Okay, but if you are in this environment, one of the things you do is there's certain things you do with time and money in order to stay stable. And basically, in this environment, it's three things. In middle class or stable environment, decisions are made against work, achievement, and material security. People go to work. They uh, go to school so they can have a better job. And they buy things that become an asset, like a mortgage. And they have four rules about money. Okay. Number one, I don't ask you for money, and what's the rest of that response? I don't ask you for money, and you don't ask me, okay? Number two, if you borrow, you have to what? Yep, pay it back, okay? And the next one is this, you never ever quit a job until, yep, you have another one, and do you tell people your salary? Yes or no? <laughs> no, you do not. Okay. See, we're, we're all really comfortable with those rules. We think everybody's got them. They don't think that way. But if you're in wealth, then you have a different problem again. And I do a lot of conversation about wealth for this reason. It's totally misunderstood. And wealthy people often in communities are only asked for money, okay? And so they kind of learn to keep a very low, quiet profile hidden, if you will, because they don't actually want to be dinged all the time for money, and they can't really identify their thinking because people just go, Oh, poor baby, you mean you have this problem? Ooh, ooh, ooh. So what happens over time, they stay kind of behind the scenes and become more difficult to access. See, in wealth, you have a problem that you don't have in middle class. Your problem is personal safety. You have more resources than you can take care of yourself. And you have to pay people to help you. And that makes you vulnerable at a personal safety level. If you have a 15,000 square foot home, You can't do it by yourself. You have to have help. If you have a 35,000-acre ranch, you have to have help. You have your own business, you have to have help. So what happens over time is people get robbed, they get kidnapped, and so they become very careful. And in wealth, your decision is made against your financial, your social, and your political connections for two reasons. Number one, you stay safe. And two, you make more money, which leads to another hidden rule, which is if you go to a party among the truly wealthy, that top 1%, you do not introduce yourself. People will just turn around and walk off. But if you go to a party among the middle class and you don't introduce yourself, what are you if you don't introduce yourself? Yes, you're a snob. But. If you were wealthy, you would do the same thing. What I'm trying to say is this. These rules have to do with how you survive an environment. Let's suppose that you and I were at a party, and you're wealthy, and I'm not. I introduce myself to you, and you, uh, I introduce myself to you. You're thinking, who is she? And what does she want? If she were anybody at all, I'd have been introduced to her. And when they do introduce you, they say your name and your connection right away. This is so-and-so with the Walton family. This is so-and-so with such and such a foundation. I mean, you're introduced. If they say, this is Ruby and she's my very dear friend, you know what that means? It means I like her, but she's got no connections. Okay? And I have been introduced that way. Um, and the rule about money and wealth is you don't talk about the cost of an item. Why would you? I have to tell you this story. See, in middle class, when people want to know if you're worthy of respect, they ask you within the first five minutes of meeting you, what do you do? Okay? But in wealth, they want to know who you know. Okay? So if you're in the South, it starts like this. Who are your people? If you're on the East Coast, they want to know where you went to undergraduate. Now listen for Ivy League. If it's not Ivy League, then they want to know where you've traveled. A friend of mine is a flight attendant on an airline, and she actually did this. She had a guy who got into first class, and he was really angry about something. And he said to her, the flight attendant, my friend, he said, Do you know who I am? And he looked at her, and he said, she looked at him, and she said, Hmm, she got on the PA system of the plane and said, I got a guy in first class who does not know who he is. If you can help him identify himself, please come forward well he's trying to establish his connections she's trying to help him with identity okay not the same page but if you were in poverty you have a different problem again because your problem this time is this you actually don't have material security you have a few things an example I often use is my brother who, incidentally, he passed away this summer of um, cancer, but he was very stable until the 80s came, and farming was brutal, he lost his farm, and um, he bounced around with employment for two to three years, and uh, during that time they had a severely handicapped child. Uh, the child is 23 now and he can't feed himself and then he got sick but he didn't go to the doctor right away and then eventually he couldn't work anymore and so there was no one in the household who could work anymore because his wife is taking care of their child he can't work so I, I bought a property for them I give them cash each month I have a sister who gave them cash another sister paid their utilities My brother bought them gasoline. We all got together and bought him a vehicle. But he doesn't make his decisions against work and achievement. That's not what keeps him alive. He makes his decisions against people, relationships. They keep him alive. Against survival, because that's what he does every day. And entertainment, because that takes away the pain. And when people become your possession then all the rules change. That's why a fight over a girl or a man or a woman or whatever is so much more intense. They're yours. It is legendary, legendary in community colleges the number of women who get one or two courses away from a degree and they quit because of a relationship. That's why in generational poverty, not situational and not working poverty, but in generational poverty, Parents fear their children getting educated. Because when children get too educated, what do they do? They leave. And in poor white neighborhoods, they say, you're getting above your raisins. You're too big for your britches. Poor African-American neighborhoods, they call them Oreos. Poor Hispanic neighborhoods, they call them coconuts. Poor Asian neighborhoods, bananas. Poor Native American Indian neighborhoods, they call them apples. But, but the issue is still the same. The issue is we are afraid you're going to leave. And part of what happens in uh, educated households is, in middle class in particular, people worry when they get old they won't have financial security. But what you worry about when you're old in poverty is you won't have physical safety, and you want your children there with you, okay? And what's the rule about money in, in poverty? If I have any, and you have some, we got to share. One of the biggest hurdles for kids in in poverty in schools is math. It's it's just Algebra 1 is a bottleneck, okay? See, the way middle class teaches math to their children is with money. But you don't have money in poverty. So And when you get it, you share it. People go, I don't know why you have to share. Wall Street Journal had a big article in it about three years ago about all these big box stores on midnight of when the day that people get the electronic food stamps deposited in their card, they're jammed with people. They don't understand why they have to have extra checkers, extra cashiers. I do. Number one, you're hungry. Number two, if you don't spend everything on the card that night, somebody's going to call you in the morning and say, hey, I know you got your card. Can I borrow it? And you have to say yes. People say, I don't understand why I have to say yes. You have to say yes because... If you have, if your car breaks down the highway in middle class, you call AAA. If it breaks down on the highway in poverty, you call Uncle Ray. And if Uncle Ray asks to borrow your food stamp card and you said no, what's he going to say to you when you ask him for help with the car? No. So money is communal. One of the girls in Frank's name got a checking account, she started writing checks, and they were bouncing everywhere. Um... And one of the things that happened is, I said to her, what are you doing? She said, Ruby, they gave me these checks. I'm using them. I said, no. You can't do it that way. Checks represent cash. They are not cash. So what happens then is this. These land lead to all these different understandings of how the world works. Work and school actually use the norms from stability. In other words, you have to keep your institution stable, so you use those norms. And you tend to bring those along with you. These tend to be how you make your decisions. And these are the three things that will move you out. Education, relationships, and employment. Now, what we do in framework is we, oper- we when we work with schools, what we do is we say, here are the 10 actions that you have to do, okay, in order to get higher achievement out of your students with poverty. And one of them, you have to have a relationship with them or they won't work for you. Another one is that you have to deal with language issues and you have to deal with abstract representational realities. Okay? But the overview of this is that many of the issues occur in schools because environments are so different. The knowledge bases are different. School operates out an abstract representational reality. Okay? And um, the bottom line is you don't. Poverty is very much about a sensory concrete reality, day-to-day survival. So one of the ways I teach this concept to children is this. You take a picture of them or you take a picture of the class and you say to them, is this picture you? They'll say yes. I'll say, is the picture breathing? They'll go, no. I'll go, how is that picture you if it's not breathing? Well, it takes them a little bit. And then they'll say, well, it looks like me. It represents me. And I'll say, yes, that's exactly correct. And that's what school is about. The numbers are not the things. They represent the things. The words are not the ideas. They represent the ideas. The letters on the page are not the sounds. They represent the sounds. Okay? Those checks that people write Those are not the money. They represent the money, okay? That drawing in your biology book is not the cell. It represents the cell. The map that you use to get from one place to another is not the reality. It's just the guide. It represents the reality. And that's what we go to school to learn. And how you help them bridge that with mental models and stories and analogies. And how you help them have the abstract processes to gather data on paper. Those are all the things we do. See, to survive in poverty, you've got to be sensory. You've got to be nonverbal. And you've got to be reactive. It's how you stay alive. But to survive in school and work, you've got to be verbal. If you don't like somebody at work, you can't hit them. You have to insult them in formal register. We live in this representational world of paper and computers, and we require that you plan. The two worlds are diametrically opposed, and what we do is teach how to transition those two worlds so you can be successful. So I'm going to stop there and uh, see if you have uh, questions for me. But if there are no more questions, I'm going to say one more thing that we're going to recommend to you. I have been, in the last 20 years now, I have been increasingly convinced that we institutions and schools cannot move the needle alone. We're literally not moving the needle. And I am convinced that you have to have a two-generation approach. And let me tell you why. Because schools alone cannot buffer neighborhood effects. There isn't a person in this webinar who hasn't said, you know, we do a great job at school, and then they go home. And it's all about neighborhood effects. And we don't think we can do anything about it. Well, we can. And the way you do it is to build the human capacity in the adult. We had a company come to us who has a billion dollars a year in defense contracts. And they wanted to know, they said, we're very interested in what you do because you build human capacity. And we think that's the next frontier. In other words, the capacity to negotiate a knowledge-based economy. Okay? And what we did is we've done this getting ahead in a getting by world with adults in poverty. We've done 40,000 adults in poverty. We tell them we think you're a problem solver. You have to be. We just don't think that you get the same information. Other people do. And one of the reasons I'll say this. Is the average student spends 1150 waking hours a year in school. They spend 4700 waking hours outside of school. They hit adolescence. They hit all the neighborhood effects. And they're overwhelmed. And. What we do is this. I found this next slide out when I was doing a book for American middle level education called Achievement for All. They wanted me to tell them what happens at developmentally to kids and adolescents. And then what happens developmentally if they're in poverty. And I found a piece of research in the developmental research that has never bled over into the school business at all. And it's this one. If you go through early puberty, two years or more ahead of your peers, what they do is the outcomes are abysmal, okay? Many schools right now tell me that they're having children going through puberty at eight and nine and ten years old. If you go through puberty early, two years or more ahead of your peers, you are, if you're female, there's earlier sexual activity, earlier pregnancy, lower grades. Course failure in ninth grade, okay? And as many of you know, you fail in ninth grade. It's a couple courses. It's difficult to get a high school diploma. Male is more aggression, more delinquency, more alcohol, more sex. Same thing, failure in ninth grade. And early puberty is correlated with the following things. Absence from the father. They don't know why. They think it's about the stressors in the environment. Violence in the environment. Stressed parents diet genetics one of the things we know is that if you're in poverty you have more stressors and your diet impacts if you're african-american it's related to genetics but the bottom line is this you go through poverty two years or more ahead of your peers and the bottom line is you probably are not going to finish high school so we don't even talk about neighborhood effects we pretend they don't even exist And after fifth grade, we don't do anything for parents either. And what we do, K-5, is we tell them how to help their children. You can't help your children if you don't have the capacity to do it. It's like saying to somebody, okay, let me teach you how to read. I don't know how to read, but I'll teach you. No, you won't. And it's a about the capacity to address your own life and negotiate your own life. So when we do this getting ahead, we do not, we do not talk about their children. They end up talking about their children, but we don't. And the return on investment is this. It costs about $7,500 to do 12 parents. We don't take more than 12. And $4,800 of that goes to parents because we pay them to come. And The bottom line on the thing is this, 9 out of 12 tend to finish. Totally changes the way they interact with school. And $7,500 is what it costs you when you lose one dropout, one year of one dropout's ADA, average daily attendance money. It's very cost effective. Now, if you would like to have more information about this, what we can do is to put the link of the research. We've had a research study out at the Indiana School of Social Work about why it works, how it works. And there sources on the web where you can get more information. We have time for a question or two. Yes, Jenny, you do have to build relationships first. But a lot of times parents will come because of the money. We pay them a $25 gift card each time they come. And we tell them learning's important. And we want to we wanna respect that. So I want to thank you so much. So if you have a question, uh, what strategies do you have for middle-class adults to build relationships with students in poverty? Uh, one of the things we do for middle-class adults, and we do it in the training, is we tell them a lot of the hidden rules that come out of poverty. I didn't tell you nearly all of them. Like one of them is, you'll have a fight at school, and the kid'll say he's looking at me, he's messing with me, and the teacher, what middle class teacher, will say well, what he say, and the kid will go nothing. Well, the teacher's so confused and dismisses it. It's a very serious issue, but the reason is that in poverty, you make your decisions based on nonverbals because nonverbals tell you a person's intent. And you only have half the words that you have in poverty, So in, in middle class in poverty. So we tell them a lot of the hidden rules that their, their students are using. And what that really does is it helps the teachers have a relationship. Because a lot of times teachers get mad at students, and they're angry at them over hidden rules. And when they understand them, then they can say, okay, I understand what happened there. Okay? So I don't have to be mad about it. Can you please span more on the political divide and its relationship to intellectual capital? Yes. What we have right now in America is a huge divide between haves and have nots. And it really basically boils down to the divide is between the educated and the uneducated. And the bottom line is if you're educated, you can negotiate the knowledge based economy. If you're not, you can't. Okay. And so that's the key issue there. And, We begin to, intellectual capital is the business community's uh, terminology for the ability to negotiate a knowledge-based economy. Yes, Stephanie, we have a whole program called R Rules, like R, the letter R, and rules. And it's been very successful with high school students. We use it a lot in alternative schools. Uh, Menominee Indian Tribe in uh, Wisconsin, They use that with all their high school students and their graduation rate went from 50% to 94%, which you know for Native American Indian tribes is phenomenal. So it's called Our Rules. And if you'd like to know more about it, Stephanie, um, Jenny says, yes, she loves it. It's amazing, okay? It's amazing, yeah. Thank you so much. This has been an AHA Process webinar podcast. Visit ahaprocess.com for more. Royalty-free music courtesy of sound.com.